You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to Season 3 of the Dublin Non Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Shauna Bannon-Ward, and with me today we have Dr. Sorsha McCormick, a lecturer at Leeds Beckett University, with whom I will discuss the term revenge porn and the recent Irish Discord server leak. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Hi, and thank you so much for taking the time to come to the podcast. If you want to go and introduce yourself to our audience. Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. My name is Dr. Sorsha McCormick. I am a lecturer over in England, actually, in Leeds Beckett Law School. I've recently finished my PhD at Durham University, which looks at uh, sexual offences and the issues of vulnerability and autonomy within the legislation. That's great. Thank you so much again for coming and talking about this um, discussion. It's about the Discord server leak and legislation around revenge porn in Ireland. I think it's a really topical issue as well. We were discussing about how recently there was legislation passed on this topic as well. So I think it'd be really great to get your perspective and some knowledge for people who maybe aren't too familiar with the topic. So I think if we just go into talking about like the recent um, Discord leak, that's obviously something that a lot of people took issue with because there wasn't much that was happening and they felt like it was a violation of women's rights and privacy. So do you yeah. want to talk about what happened there? Yeah, of course. I'm sure many will be familiar with what happened. But for those not familiar, there was about, I believe, about 140,000 images of women and young girls so-called leaked from this platform called Discord. It's a US-based chat forum. And these images contained, I believe, around 11,000 images relating to Irish women and young girls. I think it was Linda Hayden, the founders of Victims Alliance, who was the first to have uncovered this server with those images. So it's affected thousands of Irish women and young girls having their private sexual images shared on platforms. I believe the Garda Síochána were on the hunt for about 500 Irish men who had downloaded and reshared these images of young girls without their consent. Obviously, then this then gained a lot of traction um, amongst the public. There was a lot of campaigns and petitions demanding that the Irish government did something because there was no legislation to criminalise this behaviour. And it's been a massive hole in uh, Irish legislation for quite some time now. And it's not the first time this has happened in Ireland either, or indeed um, in other jurisdictions. So it's kind of something that has been needing to be addressed for quite some time. And this has kind of happened now just before Christmas to reignite the fire behind those campaigns. Title or like name revenge porn, it's been around for quite a number of years and it's Mm -hmm. becoming really more in like the conversation and people are being more concerned about because with people sharing images online and this kind of conversation about privacy for people and women's rights. I mean, Mm -hmm. what is the idea then? What is revenge porn then? What can be considered revenge porn? Yeah, so revenge porn is typically, you know, what you would imagine from that terminology is an ex-partner raging that that their girlfriend has cheated on them or broken up with them and in an act of revenge has shared a sexual image of them to get their own back. 
But of course, that is a very limited circumstances in which that does happen. It does, of course, happen, but there are so many other ways that revenge porn, the so-called revenge porn, um, does occur. So you have things like the colloquial terminologies of upskirting and downblousing these voyeuristic offences. You have things like sextortion, so using images and threatening to publish images by um, coercing individuals and doing certain acts or different things like that. And you have issues with the distribution um, of, of sexual images for financial gain or for a laugh or for gaining standing within a group of people. So really, the, due to the advances in technology, there's so many different ways in which this occurs rather than the traditional how we might perceive revenge porn to be. There's deep nudes and deep fakes and editing images to make it look like someone is sexually compromised or in some other way. I believe there was an app that was undressing women, which was obviously, obviously extremely distressing. But of course, this terminology, as you say, Shauna, is completely wrong and it's misleading. Um, you know, if you even if you just break it down, what does the term revenge mean? You know, it suggests to us that revenge is uh, that's only the only motivation that they've actually only done this to seek revenge on a partner. But in fact, it happens in so many other circumstances, as I mentioned before, for financial gain or for getting some sort of standing within a group. And also revenge suggests that they have some form of a justification for what they're doing. You know, it suggests some sort of victim blame, which again, of course, is completely inaccurate. And porn suggests it has to be for sexual gratification, which again, isn't necessarily the case. And porn also suggests it's consensual, which of course is never the case in relation to this so-called revenge porn. But as you mentioned there, there is so much problems with this terminology. So instead, academics, and I think there is some traction, especially in Ireland, moving away from that terminology towards image-based sexual abuse. And that is a term that Professor Claire McGlynn and Professor Erica Rackley have coined to more accurately convey the ways and means in which this sorts of behaviour is perpetrated. What it is, it is sexual abuse. And by placing it in this kind of spectrum of image-based sexual abuse, it's placing it on what they call a sexual um, abuse continuum, so a continuum of sexual offences, and reflecting on it as that. So it allows victims of such abuse to access justice and to address policy and legal issues in this broader strategy of violence against, violence against women and gender inequality, because that is, in essence, what this is. And it accurately then conveys the significant harms that image-based sexual abuse causes. There are so many different harms and impacts that it has on the victims of image-based sexual abuse. What are they? What, can, what actually happens and what's the effect on victims of this type of abuse? Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's such a wide ranging type of harms that can follow from image based sexual abuse. And that's not least because of the different ways in which it can be perpetrated. But the one thing to, I suppose, point out here is the harms suffered are deeply gendered. The victims of image based sexual abuse are overwhelmingly in the majority women. So it is women and girls who are who do face these forms of these harms that follow. And there are so many. So you can talk about issues with the violation of bodily integrity of the victim and personal integrity. So you have issues with doxing. So what happens is some people can deconstruct an image and figure out who is in the image, get their contact details, 
where they live, their names, where they work, and these and people then imaged or pictured are then attacked and they're assaulted and they're threatened and they're harassed. So obviously you've got that imminent instant kind of threat of assault and this fear of being constantly being feared that they're going to be assaulted or attacked at any time, which obviously caused some ser- serious emotional distress and anxiety. But that then can then lead and interfere on in their personal lives and their and their professional lives. So it might affect their employment opportunities. They may be dismissed from employment. They may retract from social spaces and they may find themselves feeling a lot of shame and feeling shamed on by their family or their friends. And they may then get quite, you know, fearing relationships and never fearing being able to trust someone ever again, of course. But also you have long term psychological impacts and physical impacts of image-based sexual abuse and they are real of course and as you say it is a privacy violation and you know our rights to privacy are enshrined within the European Convention of Human Rights so having having this sort of a violation is is real and it is serious and there needs to be redress for those individuals we have an expectation of privacy everyone has an expectation of privacy And no one should have those rights violated, whether that is in public or in private. We should have that expectation of privacy constantly. You know, dignity as well is a key here. Having your dignity dishonored, many victim survivors may feel that they're they're worthless, that they've been their self-worth has been violated. And it's not just the individual that fears that or feels that, should I say. All women will feel that. All women will feel this constant fear that. They shouldn't get too careful or too comfortable, especially online, because it might well happen to them. So it's not just individualized. This is across the board. And and that then goes to sexual autonomy and sexual expression. You know, we all should feel secure and able to exercise our autonomy rights and our right to sexually express ourselves. But instead, what's happening here is women are being blamed and they're being shunned for originally if they have consensually created the image themselves, they're being told, oh, well, you shouldn't have taken that picture yourself. You know, oh, well, she's a silly girl. You know, you need to be careful who you send those pictures to. You know, there's campaigns that are think again who you send nudes to. And that is completely missing the mark here. It is completely wrongly targeting the problem. It's saying that the women are the problem. And what is happening there is telling women and girls to curtail their sexual expression. And instead, we should be focusing on the non-consensual sharing of those images. And that's what we need the legislation to do. We need the legislation to focus on the non-consent involved here rather than the actual woman taking the image in the first place. I mean, you just touched there on legislation and what's happening with that. I mean, we said recently that it was passed over the just for the mm. Christmas break. So can you give a bit of a background to what that actually entails and what offence comes out of that legislation. Absolutely, yes. So as you're right, John, just before Christmas, we were lucky enough <laughs> to have the harmful or the harassment and harmful communications and related offences bill of 2017 passed. So I believe it was on the 18th of December. So just before they broke up for Christmas, it was passed into legislation. So in response to this discord leak. Now it's informally being called Coco's Law, as it was initially drafted in response to Nicole Fox, who was abused online. So she was harassed online and unfortunately, sadly, took her own life. 
so this legislation tackles that but it also for our purposes talking today it does cover image-based sexual abuse now most jurisdictions have responded to things like a discord leak in a knee-jerk reaction saying we must get legislation in now and put something into into play and often what happens is it's ad hoc and piecemeal and misses the mark so ireland really have been sitting on this for quite a while so three years they've been sitting on this legislation and it has led to this happening so they have had time to reflect and address the issues that other um, other legislators have failed to encompass and we have created they have in essence created two offenses so we have two offences under section two and section three. Okay. And section two refers to, they're quite similar, but section two is the more serious of the offence. And that refers to where a person intended to cause harm to a victim by recording or sorry, by distributing or publishing a sexual image of another. And they caused harm or distress or alarm to that person. Section three then is what we call a, a summary only offence and it is a strict liability offence. So there's no mens rea. So for those of you who are not criminal lawyers, what that means is there's no focus on the intention of the defendant. It's irrelevant what they intended. It is enough that they share that image non-consensually and it caused harm to the person imaged. So they're the two offences. There's some positives. They use terminology such as representation. So it's not just a picture, it can be a recording and it can also include doctored images. So something that has been edited, um, like deep fakes and deep nudes. It also uses the terminology intimate image. So not just a representation, so not just genitals. Genitals can be covered by underwear, so it can cover voyeuristic offences. And I think that was based on the Canadian Criminal Code's interpretation of what we mean by intimate and sexual images. And it also includes a threat to publish things. So sextortion, as we call it. So it is good on face value. We've got some really progressive points here and they've moved away from some of the issues that other legislators have failed to encapsulate. But of course, there are some problems. Do you want to outline um, the problems? Yeah, <laughs> I can. I'm like, I don't want to put too much of a damper, but there are, of course, problems. Unfortunately, they have missed the mark on some issues. So section three, I think, is really great. We've got this summary only offence, which means it's more minor. So there's less serious penalties involved, just a potential imprisonment of up to 12 months and a fine as well. But it, so there's no mens rea, as I say, but it seems as though in the debates leading up that this section only is going to be used as a deterrent because they're worried with it being strict liability for constitutional reasons that they don't necessarily want to have it as having too much of a wide scope so in that said if it's only going to be used as a deterrent to say oh if you're in if you're in in possession of a sexual image of someone else you have the responsibility to take care of it so if they're only using it for those circumstances it's going to be limited so that in that sense, we may be relying on section or section two a little bit more, which is the more serious offence and the little bit more complex one to demonstrate. So it, you need to, for section two, demonstrate that there was an intention to cause harm. And the legislation defines harm as the intention to cause either interfere, seriously interfere with the peace and privacy of the victim or cause them alarm or distress. Okay, and section three also requires that to demonstrate that, but no necessarily intention to have done that. 
problematic for many reasons. Being the first one, it's going to be difficult to prove. Okay, prosecution are going to be faced with having to demonstrate that the victim actually did suffer an inter serious interference with their peace and privacy. Like, what on earth does that mean? How is that going to be demonstrated? And if that is a prosecutorial evidential requirement, presumably that is going to require a victim to give some sort of an impact statement or provide evidence, which then may dissuade victims from coming forward or even supporting the prosecution. And likewise, it may also encourage more of an in-depth kind of exploration into the privacy of that victim again. So they're going to have to, you know, regurgitate some more private, intimate facts about themselves and that may dissuade them from getting involved. Likewise, a survivor may also have to demonstrate that it seriously interferes with their peace and privacy. So, you know, what is a serious interference? When is it serious? When is it not? And Helen McEntee, one of the TDs involved in the debates leading up to this bill's enactment, referred to saying using serious was to identify it as a serious offence, but Unfortunately, I think it's just going to create a bar to prosecutions and making the bar quite high to demonstrate that. We also have the issue of by saying that a victim must have caused, been caused distress or some fear or interfering with their peace and um, privacy. Professor McGlynn and Erica Rackley, Professor Rackley have also said that that could be a problem in the sense that it's creating this idea of an ideal victim. So what is the ideal response and unless you respond in a particular way are you going to be able to access justice you know you may just be angry uh, you might just be angry at the uh, person and and is that going to be enough so really we've got a problem there and the focus really should be on consent like section three but maybe the mens rea should have inc incorporated the uh, knowledge of lack of consent rather than intention to cause this sort of harm Luckily, it does include recklessness, so we may get over it in that sense, but, you know, it's time will tell, basically, in that sense. And my concern really here is we've missed the mark because this offence has been packaged within an harassment act, harassment and harmful communication. It's more than just a harmful communication. It is more than just harassment. It is sexual abuse. And because it's been packaged here, it mentions consent, but it doesn't refer to the definition of consent within the Sexual Offences Act. There's no reference to whether or not the evidential presumptions apply. My understanding from the debates leading up to it was they didn't want to get involved in that, but, it, but it, it needs to be there. And maybe it will be clarified and it will be used. And I think it should be because really it, that is what it is. It is a sexual offence. It is sexual abuse. It sits on a continuum of sexual offences. And it, rather than calling it a harmful communication, it needs to be identified what it is. Now, it is better than England. England is a bit of a mess. It's saying you have to demonstrate an intention to cause distress to your victims and it doesn't cover recklessness. But more is definitely going to be needed here um, to ensure that we have any sort of success. I'm interested in how it will be interpreted by the courts in Ireland. I think mm. that's really when we're going to see the implementation of the Act and its intent. I mean, there is what the intentions of legislators and lawmakers were but it I think it will show when it's interpreted by the courts and how Absolutely. it's actually implemented mm -hmm. hopefully there'll be a shift then in the way people approach this like topic and discussions on it within Ireland so I definitely mm -hmm. think still think it's a massively taboo subject mm -hmm. and 
like we were talking about how this is really just the starting point this isn't the end of it it's like a jumping off point so what else can be done then to address this problem like what else needs to be done yeah you're right Uh, the law is really it is a powerful tool it can shape attitudes it can help inform people challenge stereotypes and really kind of shape attitudes and it can act as a deterrent as well but as you say it's just the law alone is not going to be enough we're going to need more here we're going to need policy we're going to need education we need to disapprove of this behavior head on you know when you see or hear of it every single one of us need to challenge it and disapprove of misogynistic attitudes and kind of move away from this challenging ideas that oh uh, sending nudes without consent is just a harmless prank and that the person should just get over themselves absolutely not this is sexual abuse and it needs to be called out for that at every single stage so we need to move away from victim blaming from shaming from responsibilizing women women and from instead attacking it from the source and saying you should not and you cannot share an image of anyone without their consent and to do that is a criminal offence and it is completely unacceptable behaviour and we need this sort of an ethic that the law and society says that this just is not okay and 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 that will come with different things it comes with education it comes with policy it comes with schools and university coming on board and employers coming on board and educating everyone um, about how to effectively and compassionately respond to image-based sexual abuse and to educate people on relationships and and equality and introduce comprehensive training uh, to the police so that they understand how to identify this, how to tackle this and how to respond to victim survivors of image-based sexual abuse. Because the reality, of course, is until we have a holistic and systemic and widespread campaign to tackle this. And as you say, it is a taboo subject. We need to tackle this together as well as the state. Um, then then it's never really going to change. Um, But this is a step in the right direction. And hopefully we will see an increase in the prosecutions, an increase in securing convictions, and together challenging those attitudes as a society for this abuse really to be taken seriously. But of course, only time will tell. And this is, the law is just one piece of a very, very complex puzzle. I have just one final question then, just about how, as you said, um, Ireland have been sitting on this for three years. And so they Mm -hmm. have delved into it more so than other countries. And this isn't just like an Irish problem. It's an international issue. So Mm -hmm. what can other countries learn then from the way Ireland have discussed this, like negative and positives? Mm. Yeah, I suppose they can learn a few things. Um, They can learn not to sit on legislation for three years and wait for a massive leak to happen before they actually respond. (laughs) Number one. (laughs) Uh, Number two, I think they have included different forms of the ways and means in which image-based sexual abuse can be perpetrated. So they haven't just focused on revenge. They have looked at different ways. They've talked about the threats of it, and they've also included voyeuristic offences such as upskirting and downblazing, which a lot of jurisdictions haven't included because it's not perceived as, as serious enough. So that is something that as well that can be commended. So there are those little things that can actually be reflected and other jurisdictions can learn from that. They can also learn from including recklessness. And this summary only uh, strict liability offence can be commended too. But also they can, we could also learn that perhaps the issue here is consent 
and that the issue should focus on whether or not that person consented to that image being shared. And that really has just been missed, I think, a little bit here. They mention it, but it's not the focus. It's a bit of an afterthought. And they should also learn that this is a sexual offence. It needs to be categorised as such. And, and once it is done, then that, that just will create a more holistic and nuanced response to this. So recognising it as a sexual offence. In fairness, they've attempted to do that. The media in Ireland have been great moving away from revenge porn, talking about as image-based sexual abuse. But I just think more of a focus on that will, will be really helpful. I think other jurisdictions can learn to focus on that too. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today and to our listeners. Where can people hear about this more from you? Well, you can just follow me on Twitter because I rant a lot on Twitter. <laughs> um, so it's Sorsha McCormack uh, on Twitter. And yeah, just in upcoming um, publications as well. And Professor Claire McGlynn is a great source of knowledge as well for those interested. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Dublin Non-Politics Review podcast on the term revenge porn and the recent Irish Discord server leak. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at Dublin LPR or on our website, dublinlpr.ie. This podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's Start FM. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at dublinlpr.ie. This was Shauna Bannon Ward and I wish you a very pleasant day. 